You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. It is the reading room now, and uh, Sally Rippon, children's author and illustrator and um, co-host extraordinaire on this show, uh, is joining us again, and thanks for coming in again, Sally. That's always so much fun, thanks. And um, today um, you've brought with you Fiona Harris. She's a writer, actor, director in television, film and theatre, and she specialises in writing youth theatre for children, but she's also very well known for her adult um, comedy, and um, yeah, it's good to have you in, Fiona. It's very lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. And you're looking really great, considering that um, you didn't do the comedy festival this year. You're one of the few yes. comedic, comic writers that can kind of get out of bed. But I still have a cold, so <laughs> I don't know how that happened. Even though I didn't do the comedy festival and you usually get the lurgy halfway through and I didn't even do it and have I've still got it. Have you been socialising with comedians? Uh, I've been socialising this weekend actually, not with comedians, but with people who made me sick. I'm just going to blame them for <laughs> keeping me out late, giving me too much alcohol. It's their fault. So I'm really interested in the idea of what it is, what, what, how you would define what comedy is. We were chatting a little bit about it before. And um, how is it that you make something funny? It's, it's not something I imagine that's easy to do. Not anybody can do it. What do you think it is that would make something funny? Um, well, I don't know. I think it's very... Obviously, comedy is something that's very subjective. It's different for everyone, what people find funny. But I think, for me, something I learned early on in my days of um, doing... I did a lot of sketch comedy over a five-year period. I did um, a show called Flipside and Skid House and then Comedy Inc. And that was all, obviously, being in the total... Totally immersed in the world of comedy for so long. And what I learned early on, which I think helped me a lot, is... The more you try to be funny, the less funny you are. Um, <laughs> that's just a rule that is fairly universal. I think if you are trying too hard at anything, really, um, it's not going to be as effective as if you are just, you know, being more sort of laid back about it and, and thinking in terms of the story that you're telling and who the character is and being true to that. And that is where, I mean, you know, obviously I could reference The Office like 50 million people have, but if you're just being in that character in that moment and truthfully playing it that's always going to be a lot funnier and slightly unaware perhaps yeah unaware self-deprecating all those sorts of things for me anyway I've personally found that's where I enjoy watching comedy and performing and writing comedy is that sort of understated um truth I think. Yes. And do you think also, I mean, so many comedians cut their teeth in, in stand-up yes. and having that audience response, is that important, I suppose? Like that, how informative is having that audience, immediate audience interaction? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I personally didn't start out that way. I'm one of the, the strange creatures who did a lot of sketch comedy and people would assume I'd come from the world of stand-up because most of them on the shows I was doing did but I didn't I was terrified of doing stand-up comedy I found it absolutely the thought of it was just horrific um but yeah I think live theatre in the same way that stand-up comedy you get that immediate reaction from an audience and you learn over the course of four weeks if you're doing a comedy festival and I did a lot I've done a lot of comedy festival shows not stand-up but plays and you learn very quickly what the audience responds to and what they don't and 
And most of the time it is that. It's that truth. It's not being big and over the top and trying to be, hey, 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 I'm funny. Um, as soon as you do that, the audience go, oh, I don't like that at all. <laughs> um, and it's the same for a stand-up, you know. You see if the stand-up's shouting at the audience and, come on, I'm funny. They just go, no, you're not. It is so, sketch comedy uh, heaps of fun to produce? Because I, I, one way I kind of imagine it would be, but also if you're doing a skit over and over again, how does it still feel fresh to those who are, who are doing it that you know it's going to have that effect on the audience? Yeah, well, look, I guess with sketch comedy, um, because we churned out such a lot of... We would basically film eight sketches a day when we were doing Skit House, for instance, and Comedy Inc. and Flipside. And basically... The, the difference is that the, the most stressful part of sketch comedy I found personally was writing the sketches um, because I'm not naturally a short-form, jokey writer. That's not, my, that's not what I enjoy doing. So we had to go into a room every week uh, with four or five sketches that we'd written and read them out in front of 30 people. And if it didn't work, you knew immediately. It was like tumbleweed through the room. <laughs> um, there, there it goes. Yeah, there it is. Um, and so that part was very stressful, but the actual filming of them was fun and, you know, it, it's you, we had to get through it so quickly that we didn't have to do it over and over and over mm. and over. Um, and I think that's what kept it fresh. I took my son to the Umbilical Brothers on Friday night. One oh, of the things that I enjoyed the most was watching one of them genuinely laugh at his own jokes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that really brought me into it because I thought they are actually having fun because I couldn't think of anything more stressful than standing up and yeah. doing comedy and not getting laughs. Yeah. So, But he really enjoyed that. A lot of the humour probably went over his head, but a lot of it was quite slapstick. You two are quite a lot of schools as well. Is writing comedy for children or performing comedy for children and young adults different to adults? And, yes. and how is it different? Well, because I think well you all you always have those nerves whether it's adults or kids but um, I think when you're performing for adults there's more of a sense of the audience you know your audience and they know you and you know you've you've I would assume with what I've done you've worked a lot on a script and now you're performing it and you feel confident with it I've got to stop hitting the mic mm-hmm. um, and with kids, because what I do with teenagers is I go into schools and do a, a, a comedy slash motivational talk. Come on, kids. Um, and teenagers are much more, I would say, judgmental than adults in that, in that arena when you're in their school and they're sort of like, come on, what are you doing for us today? <laughs> um, and Sally and I were talking about this before, just that thing of kids can just recognise immediately if you're trying to be cool uh, to get on their good side or you're trying to be funny. Again, that thing of trying too hard. Um, so I've learnt to just be myself and that works really well with kids. Kids just want you to be who you are. They don't want you to try to be their mate. They don't want you to try to be younger than you are or cooler than you are. Um, and they respond well to that. Yeah, we've, so. we've spoken about that a lot, haven't we, over the, the last couple of years, Sally, with regards to writers that write for young adults in particular and, and how honest that audience is. And they will oh, yeah. absolutely tolerate no sort of error or falseness. Yep. It's all about authenticity, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. No, teenagers are very good at recognising 
BS. And you were saying you don't draw- know if I'm allowed to say the full words. So I'll say BS. <laughs> Community radio. I think yeah. you're right. Bullshit. Um, and so you were saying you draw a lot. Also, the, the self depreciation aspect of it. You draw a lot from your own childhood and adolescence. Yes. And you say they love it when you talk about yourself being a loser, and everybody loser. loves a loser. That's right, because I was a loser. Um, but you're a winner now. I, thanks very much, Sal. Um, so yeah, I my background was very much working class. Grew up in Altona North, a uh, bit of a Westie, not bit of full Westie. And um, I came from a family that were very sports oriented in their hobbies. And, you know, I was a bit of a freak, basically, because I loved this weird thing called the arts. And I loved reading and putting on shows for the neighbourhood and writing these long plays that I was always the director and star of. So I was a bit odd. Um, And so in that respect, I think I have to be self-deprecating to a lot. It was inevitable because I put up with a lot of people not really appreciating my genius uh, (laughs) over the years, uh, just thinking I was weird. So I think that has helped shape my comedy, I guess what you'd call, I don't want to say comedy skills, but where (laughs) I feel most comfortable performing comedy is in that realm of being a bit self-deprecating and... Sorry, are the sorts of things that, that kids find cu- funny when you're, you're doing these um, sort of routines at schools and so on, the sorts of things that you would have found funny when you were their age or has yeah. humour changed? No, and that's, really, that's a really good point because that's something that I am endlessly just surprised by is that I know that it's a totally different world in terms of the technology they have and the information they have that we never had and all of that, but at the end of the day, they're just kids. And so they still find, you know, the little ones still find the fart joke or the poo joke, the funniest thing they've ever heard, like we did. And the older kids, you know, when I tell these stories about being in high school and getting thrown out of the group because I made up a story about kissing someone that was a total lie because I wanted to be in with the cool group and they just saw right through it and were just like, (laughs) you're out. Um, And when I tell these stories of being, you know, essentially bullied and picked on and they, you can see, they do, they all relate and they can empathize with it and when I tell them how lame I was with some story I told and so kids have not they're still going through the same things that we went through that is just I don't think that's something that will ever change that's just part of adolescence um and yeah like I say the little kids they just love the the toilet humor that's just what makes them laugh timeless (laughs) timeless (laughs) and I wonder um with regards to um showing kids how to write, you know, um, construct their own lines or, or shows for theatre, uh, what is it that, that they benefit most from? Like, um, you know, that, you, that when you're talking to them about writing their own stuff, is it being self-conscious that they're writing for an audience or what is it that they need to, well, to learn, you think? There's workshops that I do with little kids or primary school age kids and where we always start is something from their life. And I think that's true of any writer, that you write what you know. I guess that's the universal law with writing and it's the same for kids. So when you want to try and get them to write something to perform or, you know, create something of their own, you always say, let's start with you and let's look at your family or did you recently go on a holiday or did something funny happen recently at home? Did anyone say anything that someone thought was funny? And you see them start clicking over and and that's when they go. So they basically, they've got no you know, as you wouldn't at that age, you don't know where to begin. But as soon as you put it in the context of you and your life and have a look at your world, that's a great 
jumping off point for them. And theatre is such a great place for children and adults to explore themselves too. We were chatting with Dave Burton a month ago and essentially in his memoir he was saying it was theatre and, and drama that saved him because oh. he, was, he was a very confused young adult. And do you find that putting on these shows for kids, I mean obviously kids are, diff- are different to work with than adults, but can you see kids really shine or are there kids like you who've already known that this is who they are and what they want to do? Yeah, you can always spot I, I can always see the kid who was me. There's always the kid who's just... Because I... When ki- when people used to come to my school and do theatre shows, I was just... I would actually go back... We all had to go back to class after the show had finished. We all clapped and I'd just be wide. I'd just, oh, my God, you're amazing. And then we'd all have to go back to our class and I would always... I have to go to the toilet. And I'd sneak out and hide behind the hall and watch them pack their van. <laughs> that was just the most exciting thing. <laughs> I would just stand there watching them going, oh, wow. oh look like they're real people because they're actually packing a van and they're <laughs> going to drive away. Because I always had this thing of performers were not real people. They were just so... I just put them up on such a pedestal in my mind that that was just the ultimate be-all and end-all is to be a performer. And I see that sometimes in the kids I'm either teaching or I do these talks for. There's always that kid who's looking at me with that exact same expression that I would have had that was probably freaking out the performers a little bit. (laughs) Um, And you do, you recognise it. You see you're a kid who you want to do this or there is something in this that really connects with you and this is what makes you spark and they'll usually be the ones who come up to me afterwards and just hi um, (laughs) I just wanted to ask and then they stand there for about five minutes yes well if um, I just wanted to um, when you um, yes (laughs) what do you want but yeah those are the kids that were me and you mm. can see it. We've been watching the first episode of what hopefully will become a series, Fiona, uh, called The Drop-Off. And you say to for us to kind of go to our day-to-day lives for inspiration. And I think so many of us are involved with this school drop-off thing because kids don't walk to school on their own anymore. We're taking no. them there. So all of a sudden you've got all these adults hanging around the school grounds at the beginning of the day and yes it is a, it's ripe it's for a comedy community. yes <laughs> well yes funnily enough i had the idea for the drop off at the drop off um <laughs> And, yeah, as we know, those of us with kids, there is a little community there that, you know, if you're fortunate enough to be at a lovely school where there are people who are, you know, interesting and diverse, which we have at our school. Um, and, you know, you just you look around and there's the characters and oh, starts to form. There's an idea there. So, yeah, we basically... Um, wrote my husband, so it's my husband and I, Mike McLeish. Um, you might know him from Keating the Musical, uh, Georgia Girl at the moment he's doing. <laughs> um, just throw that in for him if he's listening. Um, so Mike and I have been collaborating together for a few years now um, and this was this is our latest project. And, yeah, it's something that's very close to our hearts because we genuinely love our community and, you know, our kids go to this school that we really love. And so we just came up with this idea and and wrote uh we've written three episodes and we filmed one and um we've just put in for some funding and we're hopefully going to be making the series at some point well what i I love about the first episode is the way it kind of mirrors the the schoolyard politics that between kids and there's kind of the the in group and you're kind of watching on this creepy guy (laughs) scott edgar who's scott edgar gets very upset when you call his character creepy so we we have to call him awkward (laughs) he's awkward 
That's a really interesting point, though, to see that those dynamics that exist in the playground when you're a kid still exist when yeah. you're an adult. And there is something about that playground that cr- pulls out those kind of the, the cool group and the, yeah. the, the, the group that hovers and the awkward guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, a friend of mine actually um, called it Little Lunch, which is Danny Katz's series of books for kids, um, which is all set in recess. Um, she called it Little Lunch for Adults. That's great. Um, which I like, and I'm stealing that, Nicole Brownlee, so thank you very much. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it is, and, and I'm glad that you, you noticed that. But, yeah, we we're trying to reflect. It's that mirror image of the adults actually doing it. it we don't change. We don't grow up. Mm. It's just still the same stuff that's going on. Are there greater opportunities out there now with kind of digital medium, like, you know, being able to put things out on the internet, create a web series with not necessarily a huge uh, budgetary commitment. Are, are there greater opportunities now for, for filmmakers and people who want to try and get into into TV that the gatekeepers aren't necessarily quite as powerful as they used yeah, to be? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it doesn't even necessarily have to be for TV. Like, you you know, we've set out with, with this idea saying we wanted to put it on the net. It was a web series. That was always what it was going to be. Um, and it is a very different world to when it was when I was starting out in terms, you know, back then we had to rely on these four channels um, and just hope one of them would pick up these shows we were endlessly pitching whereas now you can have an idea you can write it and you can film it and you can put it out there and people can respond immediately and that is so I can't tell you how fulfilling that is because for so many years I like many others have written up treatments and pitch documents and scripts and submitted them and oh we get so close and it's going to be made and no it's not and so to be able in the same way that with a comedy festival show or any kind of theatre show you can just write it and put it on and get an immediate reaction from the audience this is sort of that version of it on and you're leading really like I know I noticed that the ABC is putting you know once a week um some kind of you know emerging television comedies not by emerging creators by any stretch but new series that they're sort of putting them on yeah. on prime time and but they absolutely were led from in, from the inter, from internet publishing yeah and it's just such a great thing for us as creators to be able to put something out there that we're proud of and that we really enjoyed making and that we want to make more of and have you know whether it's on facebook or just emailing it out to our friends as a link and having this feedback from everyone saying all these positive things and it makes you go, all right, yep, okay, we're doing the right thing. Let's keep going with this. And it's just very encouraging and, and, you know, spurs you on. Whereas when you're just in your room writing this script for TV that will never see the light of day and you don't get that kind of feedback, it can be really, you know, it it destroys you. And I'm excited about the future of, of having less boundaries as well. If you're not having to write, something that will fit for a certain yeah, television station absolutely. or their ideology. Do you think more and more exciting things are going to yeah. come out? Because certainly it's the case in publishing that now that people are not necessarily going through traditional publishers, yep. there's a real breadth of stuff that's available when you look through the internet. But I imagine there's a lot of rubbish out there as well. So oh, you've yeah. got to find <laughs> oh, yeah. self-publishing. But it's kind of exciting to think it about is. the stuff that can be produced when it can be more spontaneous, that it costs less. Yep. And then just to to be more mercenary I suppose how do you hope to fund these things are they just do you hope then to get a television program well we've had from putting out that first episode we got you know a lot of interest from various quarters in in tv land and other 
places, which was great. And so it's it's basically just a gradual process of we've put in a funding application to this person. These people over here have said we might give you a bit of money. So it's basically just getting from different... And that's what's so good as well because it's not just from one entity it's coming from different places and together hopefully when we've got that pool we can just go for it and make it and that's the plan but yeah it's it's just nowhere near as limited as it once was mm. which is very exciting that's great and it's great to hear the the optimism as well coming from you Fiona because I think um you know as people in in the arts and television and and books and so forth feeling overwhelmed by changes rather than buoyed by them I think is um, you know potential for some to feel that way absolutely and I mean you know I I'm old so I (laughs) can be a Luddite and be very grumpy about oh there's too much of this and this is all happening and why are people doing this but at the end of the day when you're a, a creative person I don't think you can see that this is not a good thing to have all of these platforms now and and all of these options for for creating and putting out more work. And for us in particular, um, for Mike and I, because we've been in the industry for so long, we've got, you know, all these amazing friends who we've worked with in various theatre and and TV shows that we want to bring into these projects that we're doing. So, you know, there will be a lot of scope for the guesty parent role or the principal or the hot teacher or whoever. And it's great when you can get you can work with people you love that you've worked with for years and bring them into a new project like this. So that's exciting as well. And I think you said there are so many parents now who are saying, oh, I've got material yes. for you. <laughs> Everyone has <laughs> a story. <laughs> so want to be many. part of it. <laughs> yeah. Can I be? But that was the great thing. Like our community at Ripon Lee Primary are so supportive. And when we said we were making this thing and we asked a bunch of them, hey, what are you doing on a Sunday morning? Would you want to come? and put your kids in their school uniforms even though it's Sunday and come down to the school and they're like yeah and so they all came down we gave them food and we had coffees and you know it's just beautiful it's just so lovely to have that kind of support and people who are genuinely supporting you and and want you to make good stuff and they're all there so it was you know and we want to do more of that like that's and how great is it that, that the children can see what's possible as well? And I suppose it goes back to your sort of mentoring and, and, and teaching role that you that you um, are in, that you can see the opportunities for children to express themselves that they might not even see yet and yeah. show them how it can be done. Yeah, even it's, though the kids can't really watch this. But they get inappropriate for kids. <laughs> a little bit. A Just little a little bit, bit of a warner. Don't. A warner. <laughs> I'm a writer. Um, a little bit of a warning to parents, if you are listening to this, don't show the kids. <laughs> it's not for the kids. But, yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, the, there's, like, my daughters, unfortunately, want to go into our industry. Um, and, you know, they, I want to be an actor and a writer like mum and dad. No, no, you don't. You want to go and work in a bank or something <laughs> much less stressful. You say that as a joke, but why, why do you really mean that? Yeah, see, Sally's <laughs> always on to me about this. Um, well, I don't, maybe just because I did turn into a parent and I look at my kids and I go, but I don't know that I want you to have the... The, the challenges and all the obstacles and the stress that come with... And, you know, I say that with love for what I do. I love what I do and so does Mike, but we know how hard it is. And there's part of us that just want our kids to have a less 
sort of stressful career. <laughs> do, you, do you subscribe to that idea of having a backup profession though? Because I know a lot of, like a friend of mine's daughter is wanting to go into acting and straight away everyone's saying to her, make sure you have a backup profession. And I think, well, maybe that's wise, but at the same time, it's just sort of a, a bit of a take bit the of air a out of a balloon. <laughs> yeah, you know? and I hate, people said that to me all the time growing up, well, older people, my parents, um, and I hated that because that that belittled what I was... I was like, well, no, why will I need a backup? Because this is what I'm going to do. This is all I want to do. So I understand why, you know, but now as a parent, <laughs> maybe I have had that thought that they might need a backup and I hate to admit that, but it's because they're your kids and you want them to be okay and so now I kind of understand why my parents said that. But I never had a backup. <laughs> <laughs> and it's always you can't because you've got to throw yourself into the arts fully, can't you? Don't yeah. you? I mean, we all have to support ourselves through waitressing or whatever, but you can't be completely in your work. And if you're not going to take a risk as a young person, you're certainly not going to do it when you're in your yeah. 50s and a mortgage and several children. Exactly. That's the time to take the risks. <laughs> and right. that was the thing all through our 20s. You know, I did every job, part-time job under the sun while I was doing all these plays and writing things and, and you know, it's it's been fortunate that for the last, you know, won't give away my age, but for the last many years, Mike and I haven't had to do the normal jobs. Um, but that's because we, you know, we've we've had a lot of years of, of struggling and, and, you know, putting ourselves out there as different things, not just being an actor, not just being a writer, but doing voiceovers and directing and teaching and... Being versatile. I wonder too, I mean, just going with, you know, that idea of what we say to younger people wanting to be creative, I suppose, but, you know, the VCE type experience for young people sees them drop off all of their other interests. Like, it's this sort of more narrow approach. And I'm always saying to young people to the, you know, out of earshot of their parents, is like, keep the things you love. Like, you know, Mm. we're, we're capable capable of being yes. many things at the same time we can be students and work really hard and have the other interests that boy us yeah you know? absolutely and I've had a few because I'm around teenagers a lot I teach one night a week teenage I teach from age five to 20 one night a week and so I'm around a lot of teenagers and I love teen I love the kids and I love the teenagers and you know they'll say oh you know my mum's stressed because I want to do this but and I think I want to do this with my life and I'm just like darling you've got so you don't need to know right now and I think that was when I was growing up there was this pressure you had to know what you were going to do with your life by year 12 you absolutely don't because you might do 10 different jobs between the age of 18 and 40 and I know that now and you can go and do a course or you can change your mind halfway through a career and it's a very different world now so it can become a self-fulfilling as well if someone's told you know you'll never find a job in this industry and then you kind of you're not likely to try as hard for it anyway and you won't get that job that's right that's exactly right and so that's part of this talk I give in high schools is saying relax it's okay like if there's something you really love just go for it what's the harm and if it doesn't work out you know, try something else. But you go back to waitressing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I'm glad that that pep talk happens at the same time as the pep talk from the, those that say, this is everything. This is the beginning of the rest of your life. Oh. <laughs> No pressure at all. No pressure. <laughs> well, we have to um, say goodbye to you, Fiona and Sally. Um, Fiona Harris, uh, writer, actor, director. You have to look at the drop-off um, on YouTube. I think I watched it on YouTube. Uh, look it up. We'll, we'll share it on our social media channels as well. And Sally Ripon will be back in a month with um, with The Reading Room. And um, it's really great to have you both in and have a great day. Thank, Thank you, you very much for having See me. Up. Bye.
and rate rubbish and roads. They're the big ticket issues usually for local government. But last week there were a few more issues at play with Geelong City Council. The state government has sacked them for a range of reasons um, based on a report into their, um, I suppose, their processes and, and conduct. And uh, while this seemed to lots of people like an extraordinary occurrence, it's actually happened heaps of times before. Uh, Dr Dave Nichols, maybe not for Geelong City Council, but for certainly other councils. Um, Dave keeps an eye on all sorts of different things with regards to urban planning. He's senior lecturer at the University of Melbourne and uh, councils have a lot to do with planning, Dave. But, of course um, they do. They do. Um, Roads, rates and rubbish, I think. Yeah. The, the triple R of... That's... Of uh, uh, uh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's what we think... They're the services that are the most, you know, obvious that that, that mm. local governments provide. Don't roads, forget bike lanes. Bike lanes, well, they're sort of part of roads-ish, That's aren't true. they? Or, yeah. Unless they're not on the road, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, Geelong City Council kind of surprised a few people that the, the state government could sack it, but I suppose but that means people don't have a, a long memory or a short memory because we've That's had right. lots of council sacks before. There have been lots of council sackings. Um, the, the, the last few, the Wangaratta one, which is was 2013, and that was the previous state government was sacked, um, uh, sacked, the pre- sacked the Wangaratta Council. And in both instances, it's about a toxic culture in the, in the workplace there. In both cases, there are sort of accusations that... Uh, the councils weren't conducting themselves properly in terms of, you know, workplace relations. And in the case of the Geelong Council last week, it was there was a report, I think the Halliday report, um, that the council didn't, you know, uh, respond to adequately as far as the state government was concerned. So there's, there's, it's, it's interesting that this is the, you know, this is the kind of the second decade of the 21st century. That's the kind of thing. Previously, uh, councils, local government has been sacked for, um, I think, often for sort of financial improprieties uh, uh, or uh, those kinds of those kinds of issues, uh, talk corruption and so on in uh, in local government. But yeah, there have been um, there have been a lot of sackings of councils over time and yes it is something that state government can do and it's kind of it's a yeah people do have a short memory and since i don't expect anyone to think to remember back into the uh anyone other than me to remember back into the 19th century but of course um local government is you know it's the oldest kind of you know post-invasion government that we have in uh, in australia and uh it's it's been kind of you know, minimised over time. So it's what's left is a little bit of a, a rump of something that was once much stronger and had much, much bigger influence on everyday lives. Uh, and, yeah, so state and federal have been imposed over the top of that. Is it healthy for democracy, do you think, that local councils can can be sacked like this? Because when the state government first announced it, their preference was to, to not have elections until, I think, 2020, but, mm-hmm. but through negotiations with... Um, with Liberal Party and crossbenchers, mm. that's been renegotiated. Yeah. There will be elections next year. Is it a good thing that, that the state government has this power, do you think? It's a great question, Dylan. I, um, when when we decided that we'd talk about this today, and we decided that, I think, on, on Friday, I've, I've been thrown into a kind of philosophical conundrum since that time. <laughs> I've been wondering about that very question. Why do you think about, think about us on the weekend? <laughs> Of course I do. Well, all the time, but uh, but specifically in relation to this, I have been thinking about it a lot. I think it's it's really uh, interesting question. It's an interesting question in, as it, as it relates to Geelong, particularly. I mean, I think that Darren Lyons was obviously very popular. There's a there's a. It looks quite likely that he'll be re-elected. You know, in in 
2017 when the when there's a, a new election you know it's a kind of a presidential thing he has uh zany colored hair and and people seem to respond to his uh his attitude and his approach and uh so you know i think that he has you know he's a bit of a, a popular he's a bit of a celebrity uh politician and uh on that level you sort of think well you know is he is he good for Geelong? I don't know if you guys saw that ad that was put out by the Geelong Council, I think, last year, that where it contrasted old Geelong, you know, pre-Darren Lyons Geelong, uh, as a kind of a zombie... Oh, you've got to see the ad. It's really, really interesting. It's really pretty extraordinary. I saw a, a conference paper specifically about the, the ad uh, last year when I was at the State of Australian Cities conference. And um, it's a it's an ad that kind of sets up this situation where Geelong, you know, once proud working class community, it fell into you know sort of um, it, it got a bit turgid, and there's there's images of people like you know walking the streets and one woman I think sweeping the street, you know, uh, and they look they're not specifically called zombies, but they look a bit um, zombified. Let's let's face it, it's all kind of murky colours and stuff. And then Darren Lyons shows up in the middle of the street with an enormous crook an enormous you know a huge stick which he bangs on the ground and it reverberates through Geelong and suddenly uh everybody's um you know getting married in vineyards and and having uh <laughs> wow we're um, really missing out having not seen that I'm going you've to be got to see that ad it is pretty <laughs> but it's an extraordinary I mean it's extraordinary in a number of levels and one thing is of course that it it kind of talks about Darren Lyons is this this incredible you know uh, game changer in uh, in Geelong, and he you know bringing this you know uh, re- reviving uh, a somewhat slumbering uh, city, a sort of post industrial city, I guess. And you know, I think half the battle when it comes to reviving uh, a place is making people think that the place has been revived. Well, make Geelong great again. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's that should be on a cap. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Geelong is our Big second largest city uh, in um, council area in um, um, Victoria, but the largest is Casey, um, and which is out out of Burbs. And that, there was an interesting dis- decision last week. Well, a, a disappointing one for that city, whereas a, a large liquor outlet was approved, mm. and they'd had they'd gone against um, that. They'd, they'd sort of said, "Well, we don't want another liquor store in our." sort of Cranbourne, Greater Cranbourne what, area. What they said, Carly, which I think was, was sort of funny, was they said, we've got 70, we don't need 71. Yeah, well, that's true. And and, and they were making the link with, with um, family violence as yeah, well definitely. because they have the highest rates in that region for family violence incidences as well. And and But what made me sort of think about this in regards to local government is if you have a very strong case at that that level and you say we don't want this in our community but then it can still be approved Mm. Uh, what powers do local governments have really over what happens in their areas not necessarily all the powers that they would they would like i guess and that's another one of those funny things that you know people say that australians are over governed and that was another part of my um um existential crisis on the weekend about whether that's the truth or not but certainly um you know we are governed by three tiers of of government that take responsibility for different things and some of those things hit us locally you know very very locally and so um we can you know there are people at different politicians i guess let's let's just throw them into that basket at different tiers of government who are making decisions 
um, thinking about well, how's that going to reverberate on me? Um, reverberate's not the right word. How's that? Go- what are the ramifications going to be for for me as a you know and my future as a politician? Um, will this be good or bad or or indifferent um, if people don't like the uh, the new bottle shop uh, in Casey? Will they blame my government or will they blame local government or will they just go? Oh well, it's happened. You know, I think most people just go. Oh, well, it's happened. They don't think about things in those in those terms. Um, about uh, how many liquor outlets do we have in our uh, general area? Uh, and I guess a lot of people also think, and you see this argument run every step of the way, um, thinking about the lockout laws in Sydney and so on, which is that, you know, you're not going to stop people drinking anyway, whatever you do. So, you know, why even try to make that make those kinds of, you know, whether, you, whether you're worried about nanny state or not, why even, why even try to, to uh, put those kinds of restrictions on on people's buying habits because it's just going to happen. And the, the reason I think that this has been unpicked up and the way the links that have been made in, in some of the reporting around uh, this particular liquor outlet in Cranbourne is that it um, sort of came in the week that the Victorian government announced a, a large package to address family violence coming in the wake That's of right. the Royal Commission. Um, and the government's kind of distanced itself from the approval for, mm. for this liquor outlet and said they don't really have the power. It was approved by the Commission. Yes. Um, what do, Does the liquor, uh, the Victorian Commission for Gambling and Liquor Regulation take into these considerations of, of so social welfare when approving these sorts of planning permits I, and so I on? couldn't pretend to have insight into how they make their decisions, but I imagine they have a rubric that um, they just... Uh, if it ticks enough boxes on the page, then then it's OK. Uh, I, and once again, um, you know, if I was them, if I was any one of them, I wouldn't... Uh, you know, I'd probably take the position that domestic violence is not necessarily... You know, obviously, there are links... But that's something that has to be addressed in on its own terms, and and once again, you know, I mean, a little like illegal drugs. If people want to get a hold of these things, they can. I'm not, I'm not arguing in favour of you know liquor outlets in every corner mm. at, at, by any stretch. And I, I actually think you know to a certain degree, there's a well, there's a really good case that they should be uh, minimised. But there is uh, there's certainly you know I guess there's a sort of a siloisation of these concerns that that allow people to make those decisions in a in a vacuum so to speak uh, or at least pretend that that's what they're doing or or, or feel that that's what they're doing and Dr Dave uh, Nichols is with us. He comes in monthly to talk um, about a range of issues and today we're talking about the role of local government in, in respect to a couple of decisions that have happened in the last week. The sacking of the Geelong City Council by the state government and also um, approval of, of a liquor outlet in the sort of Casey area of Melbourne. And I'm, I'm wondering about the the quality of representation we have at that local level. I mean, there's some fab- fabulous councils, but we don't pay them very much. Do we really? I mean, we, we hear a lot about, um, uh, you know, the poly pay packets at the sort of state and federal yeah. level, but certainly at that local government level, it, it can't be really a full time job for, for many people. No. It's something they do in addition it, to it's their a bit other of a caring profession. Day I jobs. think for a lot of the the uh, councillors, yeah, because they care about their community. Although uh, it's also for some people, uh, it's a bit of an investment. Some people might go, well, if I do okay in this. Test the waters here. If this goes well for me, I might move into state or federal. And there are a lot of people who cut their teeth uh, in that, you know, in local government. And uh, so, you know, just like, you know, this is the, that's the Bernie Sanders thing. You know, he was a he was a fabulous mayor. You know, those kinds of those kinds of things. But 
Uh, uh, yeah, it is. It is definitely like yes. It's the poor relation, which is the the you know. There's a there's a whole set of ironies there. But I have a feeling this is this was another thing that I was thinking about. You know, anything that that mattered that really really mattered in the in the big picture uh, at local government level has been taken off them and uh, you know put into state government. And and when local government starts to make decisions or starts to uh, or, or you know and also cause problems, but when local government starts to make uh, make decisions that have this kind of state impact, then state government can step in and say, "Thanks very much. We'll take it from here." Uh, and that's just that's just kind of how it how it's developed and how it works now. I mean, I, you know, I think there's a there's a fabulous fabulous argument for scrapping at least one tier of government, and that probably the state level and giving local government a huge amount of extra responsibility in making. You know, that's that is also that's a great democratic argument too, uh, in terms of. You know, the people at a local level will make uh, decisions in their own best interest, hopefully not to the detriment of, you know, the the, uh, the town next door. But, uh, you know, I think also realistically that's that's never going to happen, uh, not in our lifetimes uh, or our children's or our children's children. So we'll, we'll probably... We're making do with what we've got. And, yes, local government uh, has that kind of minimised... Uh, importance. If, if we go to the, the area that, that you know best is in planning, local government has a big role in implementing the planning regulations, yes. which are generally set at the state level. Mm. Is it better to sit planning with local government or state or this sort of combination approach that we have is ultimately the best? I mean, what are your views around around that? Is that, is that My view is that once upon a time we had... Uh, a really fabulous um, state planning body that was more than, you know, that actually had a holistic uh, outlook on the way that Melbourne should grow and that was kind of whittled away and, you know, killed and we don't have that kind of thing anymore but that's really what we need, particularly more than ever, I would say, or maybe that's... um, is this like the infrastructure Australia type model where that sits separate from government? Yes, separate from government and, you know, sort of obviously accountable. I mean, that was, that's been the problem. And the, the, the body that I'm talking about uh, existed in the, in the 50s and 60s at a time when uh, planning was seen by many as a, as a kind of, uh, you know, a, a range of recipes that you just applied to every situation. And we, it wouldn't, that in itself wouldn't work anymore. And that, I guess that that was probably part of the reason... Uh, that kind of modernist approach was part of the reason that it uh, it died or it was allowed to die, it was killed off. But there's, there, yes, we really need uh, some kind of something that sits us apart from government, I would say. Are we, getting, are we getting back to that at all with bodies such as infrastructure, Victoria? A little bit. Infrastructure yes, there's a little bit of recognition for that kind of, that kind of thing. Uh, and there are, you know, so there are some bodies. Of course, these things are, you know, they're subject to the... Uh, changing governments and so on, and you know, this is part of that uh, dichotomy. They have to be, you know, they have to be part of government, and they have to have, they have to be accountable, and they have to be accountable to government as well. And government has to say, no, this doesn't fit with our wider agenda. Uh, nevertheless, uh, you know, the big, the big decisions are not being made, uh, particularly when things devolve to uh, to local government, which is, you know, fairly hamstrung in most instances. So we have council elections coming up in November every four years. They're fixed terms now, sort of alternating with state elections. Geelong City Council's not having their election this mm, year. They're no. going to be um, put back a year. But are rates, rubbish and roads going to be the big issues still for local government heading into these elections, do you think? Rates, 
Yeah, rates is something that... Um, well, they've been capped now, haven't they? Yes, they have been capped. And I don't think that people... Um, you know, it's just one of those things that people complain about, but probably, you know, don't often go along and say, I'm going to vote for lower rates. Um, rubbish. Well, rubbish is such a thing right now with uh, the uh, the enormous tip that's being proposed out in the out in the West. But that's a that's a different. You know, I mean, that's rubbish is is a big issue. Um, but yeah, and roads. Hmm. You got me with roads. I don't know. I think I think a lot of people probably tend not to. This is you know, people are generally confused about the roles of local government. Mm. I suspect. And and they probably uh, tend to not that it's massively different from state or federal, but they tend to focus on one or two issues and just hope that those things, you know, those itches get scratched. Uh, and I think that probably part of the problem is that uh, the general populace are a little bit confused about what local government is is there to do and you know how how they can best do it. Like a government, no longer the R R R of government. Thanks for coming in. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming in, Dave. And we'll catch you again in a month's time. Fantastic. Thank you. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3 R 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.